0: You're listening to TIP.
1: What worked for Buffett in the 60s and the 70s might not work for you today. Now, so when you look at the most successful investors, remember their success is a product of what they brought to the table, which was substantial, the times they were in and the markets they were with. And if you take one of those three out, you can try to replicate everything they do and have nothing to show for it.
0: On today's episode, I'm joined by Aswath Damodaran. Aswath is a professor at NYU who has taught thousands of students how to value companies and pick stocks. He has also written numerous books on valuation and has made all of his university courses and stock picks available online for free, which is an incredible resource for investors who are wanting to learn more about valuation and see his thought process behind his stock picks. During this episode, Aswath covers a number of great topics, we dive into both the art and science behind valuation. And before we get into all of that, he spent some time talking about the importance of having an investment philosophy, how that differs from having an investment strategy, and how to figure out what your investment philosophy is. Then we dive into the Aswath DeModeran way of valuing companies. He shares the five inputs that investors need to value any business and talks about the most common mistakes investors make when valuing companies. And he shares a quick test on how to check if the growth rate you're using in your forecast is reasonable, how to figure out what discount rate you should be using in your intrinsic models and gives us advice on how often we should revisit our valuations of companies and so much more. I really enjoyed today's conversation with Aswath. It was such a pleasure having him on and he left us with so many great insights and a lot of homework to do after this episode. And so without further delay, I really hope you enjoy today's episode. You're listening to Millennial Investing by The Investor's Podcast Network, where your hosts, Robert Leonard and Rebecca Hotsko, interview successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors
1: to help educate and inspire the millennial generation.
0: Welcome to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Hotsko. And on today's episode, I'm joined by Aswath Damodaran.
1: Welcome to the show. Thank you, Rebecca. Glad to be on.
0: Thank you so much for taking the time to join me today. I feel extremely fortunate to have you on the show. I've been following you for a number of years now, and I've learned so much from you, how to value businesses, and I wanted to have you on to hopefully share those tips with our listeners. You have been such an incredible educator in the space, and you even make all of your university material available online for free, and you've built quite a following for doing so. So I'm just curious to know what led you to want to start educating on a larger scale
1: beyond your classroom? Well, I mean, it's when you're an actor, you want the broadest possible audience. When you're a teacher, you want to teach the biggest possible class. That's always been true. Until about 40 years ago, your classrooms were restricted by physical size. The most I could do is fill an amphitheater. The largest room, I think, at NYU fit 400 people. And I was glad to get that room. I like to teach to a class of 400. What technology has done is it's removed the physical constraint. I no longer have to teach to 400. I can teach to 40,000 or 4 million or 40 million at one time. It might seem like it's some selfless act, but I'm no Mother Teresa. I'm doing it because I want the biggest possible audience. And from a selfish perspective, technology now allows me the space to be able to reach to a lot more people at the same time
0: you have educated and inspired so many people in valuation. And what's also super interesting is you also make public all of your analysis and your thinking and stock picks. And so it's just really incredibly informative and insightful to read those. You've been doing this for so long. I am wondering who has influenced your personal investing strategy the most?
1: I don't think it's a single person. It's a collection of people because I think one of the mistakes we make is we put human beings on pedestals and we want to be just like them. And I'll give you the perfect example, Warren Buffett, an incredible investor, but people sometimes forget that he's human. He has his blind spots. And if you do exactly what he does, I'm not sure you'll deliver the results he got in the 1960s or 70s or the results in the last 20 years. I think what you need to do is take what other people do, take what parts of what they do that work for you, and then create your own philosophy that works for you as a person. So it's a lesson I actually teach in one of my classes, in investment philosophies class, where I say the right investment philosophy is the one that fits you, not the one that fits Warren Buffett or Peter Lynch or some other great investor in the past. Now, to be a successful investor, the person you have to understand is yourself. You have to understand your strong points, your weak points, what triggers you, what doesn't trigger you, and then create an investment philosophy that matches your psychology and your, your personal makeup as a person. You know. Spend some time know, learn, you know, knowing who you are as a person because that's a critical part of becoming a more successful investor.
0: I think it's so interesting because we often spend a lot of time studying super investors and we want to learn from their strategies and kind of emulate them ourselves. But I guess, where do you think investors go wrong when they just maybe copy someone's strategy like Warren Buffett and where could they improve on that
1: themselves? Because first, the strategies that those people succeeded with were in a different market in a different time. What worked for Ben Graham in the 1940s and 50s when he ran those 12 screens worked because in those days, to run his 12 screens, you had to collect the data by hand from annual reports that were really difficult to get to and compute the ratios with a pencil and not even a calculator, right? I mean, it's a slide rule or whatever he had to use. Computing those 12, those 12 ratios that he needed to screen companies was an incredibly difficult thing to do took weeks to do, which gave him a competitive advantage because most people were unable to do it. Those days are done. If you took what Ben Graham did in the 40s and 50s and try it today, when when you can run the Graham screens in a millisecond online, what makes you think you're going to walk away with Graham-like returns? Same thing with Buffett. Buffett's most incredible successes happened in the 60s and the 70s, when first he was a small enough investor that he wasn't imitated every second of every day like he is today. He had far less money to invest, so you had never price impact, and he could do things under the radar. And this was in a a market where lots of companies were under the radar. You didn't have the kind of wall-to-wall coverage of stocks you have today. What worked for Buffett in the 60s and the 70s might not work for you today. Now, so when you look at the most successful investors, remember their success is a product of what they brought to the table, which was substantial, the times they were in and the markets they were with. And if you take one of those three out, you can try to replicate everything they do and have nothing to show for it.
0: I think it's such an important lesson. And I'm really glad you talked about that because we study, like we spend so much time studying what they've done. And some people even like to take the approach of just copying what they buy, but our outcome could be vastly different. And like you just talked about what worked for them back then, things are different now. And so we can learn certain things about maybe how they valued the businesses and there's important lessons to take away. But I think today it's you have to really think about what philosophy fits you. Right. One thing I wanted to ask you, I interviewed David Rubenstein a while ago and he talked about super investors and how they became great and they were really a master at their craft. They were amazing at one thing and they stuck to that. And so I guess I'm just wondering, do you think that applies to investing today? Do you think in order to be successful in investing and be stock pickers, we need to become a specialist in one area and just stick to
1: that? I don't think so. I mean, I think specialists are doomed for failure in this market because they have tunnel vision and they're incapable of looking past their specialty. In fact, I think you have a much better shot of succeeding in investing. If you can see the big picture, big picture in terms of looking at what happens across companies, not just in your market, but geographically across markets, not just stock markets, but bond markets and crypto markets. Because I think having that perspective is what's going to give you an advantage. You get get into the specialist game. You're going to be playing against other specialists and you're all going to lose. There's no way any of you is walking out of this a winner. So I think first, be a generalist, not a specialist. Second, find a philosophy that fits you, that you truly believe in. And that's critical is, you know, you keep switching philosophies because they don't work for you. You don't have a philosophy. And most portfolio managers, in my view, don't have a core philosophy. One of the things that these super investors have is they have a core philosophy, a philosophy they go back to, not a strategy. Buying low P.E. ratio stocks is not a philosophy. That's a strategy. You need a philosophy which involves where you think markets make mistakes, why you think they make those mistakes, and what will cause those mistakes to get corrected. Those are three critical parts of the philosophy because every investment philosophy is built on a premise that markets make mistakes in certain scenarios. Be clear about what those scenarios are in your mind. And the reason they make those mistakes can be behavioral because people have psychological quirks that make them make those mistakes. It could be data-driven because in certain scenarios, the data might not be available. But you also need some part of your philosophy that explains why those mistakes will get corrected. Because remember, you don't make money by finding mistakes. You make money from those mistakes getting corrected. So when I talk about investment philosophy, I'm not talking about do you buy low PE stocks. I'm talking about your thinking about markets and investing that's leading you to buy low PE stocks. Because the difference is you buy low PE stocks and they make money great for you, but that might not work 10 years from now. If you have a core philosophy, you can go back to it and find a different strategy that works. So one of the things that you will find that great investors have in common is they they each have a core philosophy that they go back to whether you're talking about George Soros or Warren Buffett, very different investors. Each has a a philosophy that works for them. Very different views on markets, but they both found a way to make it work. But there's another ingredient that we don't like to talk about because it makes us uncomfortable, which is a big part of being a great investor is being lucky. And let's face it, you could run an experiment. You could go back in time and restart the Warren Buffett experiment but in the first three years of investing, it turns out that the timing was off. The markets were off. He didn't make money. People in his partnership withdrew all their money. we would be writing a very different history today, right? Let's not underestimate the role that luck plays in the investing game. Because you make us all, hum. It should be- and that's why I think the very best investors, if you ask them, why did you succeed, will attribute a big chunk of their success to being lucky, being at the right place at the right time. Because that's something that you cannot put into your practice. So you could do everything right, but if you're not lucky, you get a bad start, you're never going to get that successful track record that the people who got lucky ended up having.
0: That was so great to hear you explain it like that. I know you said you have a whole class on this, but I'm wondering if you have an example of a philosophy, maybe your own or just one that's well known that our listeners could hear so they know what it kind of sounds like and then they can go think about, use all those steps you just described to figure out their own.
1: Let's take growth investing as a philosophy. Peter Lynch was a growth investor, right? Growth investing as a philosophy is built on the premise that markets make mistakes in valuing growth. Why do they make mistakes? There's a lot of uncertainty about growth. And when there's a lot of uncertainty, people tend to take shortcuts. They often don't do their homework. Growth investing is built on the premise that valuing growth at a company, people are more likely to make mistakes than valuing existing assets, things that a company has already done. And in growth investing, you also believe that if you can find a way to value growth better than investors, either because you're willing to deal with uncertainty or put things down on paper, then you will over time make money by being better at valuing those growth assets in the market. Peter Lynch's core philosophy was people don't make mistakes on mature companies. They make their biggest mistakes on growth companies. And most people who invest in growth companies are traders. They really don't care about the value of growth. They're just betting on price momentum. And if you're willing to do the work on these growth companies of talking to the management, gauging which of these growth companies have valuable growth, then you can find a way to make money. And he built an entire career, a reputation on finding those growth companies. And he stayed true to it. Because along the way he invented his version, the peg ratio that you see now in markets, Peter Lynch invented the first version of that, where he looked at the change in the PE versus the growth rate. That was the metric he used. But that's not what made him successful. It was his core philosophy that growth companies are where you make mistakes. So that's the example of a philosophy, thinking through what you're investing in, why you think markets make mistakes in that area, and what causes the correction to happen. In the case of Peter Lynch, he said the correction will come when these companies that I've picked deliver growth and deliver it efficiently. Markets are going to see the reality. And At that point, they can't avoid it. They're going to increase the price of the stock, and I'm going to make money on it. That is a philosophy where you've thought through market mistakes and how the mistakes get corrected. And then you build a strategy to take advantage of those mistakes.
0: That was incredibly helpful. Thank you so much for sharing that. I would love to get into your valuation process now because there are different ways that investors can approach valuation. They can really make it simple or as complex as they want. And I think the challenge is both properly analyzing the business you're looking at and then translating that into the right numbers and forecasts. And so I want to cover both aspects the art and science of valuation with you today. And starting on the analysis side, when we're doing our research, in your book, The Little Book of Valuation, you talk about how valuation really starts with value drivers. So I was hoping you could start out by talking about what value drivers are and how we can apply this to our valuation
1: analysis. Every business can be captured on three dimensions. The quality of the business. The growth part is captured in revenue growth. Why revenues? Because it's the most honest metric of growth. You can increase net income or earnings by cutting costs, but to increase revenues, you either have to sell more items or charge higher prices. So revenue growth captures the growth part of your business. The profitability part of your business is captured in your expected margins over time. The h- higher margins, more profitable business. The third leg is a little more difficult, a little, little less direct, but you need to ask questions about it, which is how much would I, do I need to reinvest to get that revenue growth? It measures the efficiency with which you deliver growth. The reason that matters is growth by itself is neither good nor bad. It can add value. It can destroy value. You can grow and destroy value as a company. We have to reinvest huge amounts as a company. As an extreme example, think of how much damage Facebook is doing to itself with its plans to grow in the metaverse. Because right now, what people see is $100 billion that the company is going to invest, but they don't see much coming back from that $100 billion. So, revenue growth, operating margins, and a measure of efficiency, how much revenues do you get per dollar of capital, capture the business part of your company. Of course, there's risk involved, and you've got to bring the risk in. And this isn't some coming from some metric or model, it's coming from common sense. If you're investing in a business with more predictable cash flows, you're going to be okay settling for a lower rate of return than if the cash flows are less predictable. We capture that risk in two variables. One is, with a discount rate, something you need to make on a company to break even. That's all a discount rate is. And there are lots of models you can use, but don't get lost in the models. Riskier businesses should have higher discount rates because you need to make a higher return to break even. The second variable is something people forget, which is for your business to have all this potential and deliver value, it's got to survive. Companies sometimes fail you're a young growth company, it could have the most incredible potential on the face of the earth. But if it doesn't make it through the next three years, you're never going to see that potential. So to me, the two risk variables are one is the discount rate and second is some measure of failure risk. Those five variables pretty much are the drivers of value. Revenue growth, margins, that reinvestment measure, and a discount rate and a failure risk. And every business can be captured with those five variables. And your job in intrinsic valuation is to try to figure out from the facts you have and the data you have, your best estimates for those five variables.
0: And I guess one of the things that you talk about in your book, and one of the problems we face in analysis today is not that we have too little information, but way too much. And so I think this gets relevant as firms are getting more complex outside the traditional business models. I think often we don't know where to start or how to simplify the valuation process and determine what's important. And so in simplifying the process and determining what's necessary versus what's noise, would we be focusing just on those four things that you talked about? Or is there a little bit more to
1: that? There's nothing more. Everything is going to be relevant. I can't think of a single thing that happens in a company that doesn't affect one of those five. And in fact, I challenge my students to come up with qualitative variables, soft variables. They say, what about this? And I say, hey, if it matters, it's going to be in one of these variables. To me, the essence of being good at valuation is to find a way to take everything you hear about a company, however soft and however qualitative it is, and say, here's where it's going to show up in the valuation because it has to show up in one of those places. It's actually a great way to challenge people on buzzwords when they say, this matters, where does it matter? How does it show up? It's the mechanism I use to expose ESG for what it is, which is a toxic, empty concept because you know, people talk about ESG, and I've heard advocates say it's good for value. I say, okay, tell me where. By being good, am I going to grow faster? Show me the evidence. Don't give me anecdotal evidence. Will it allow me to have higher margins? Explain how. Will it make me reinvest less? Are my factories less expensive to build because I've, I'm a good company? My challenge on any concept that people throw, any soft idea is to convert that idea into a number in my valuation. If I cannot, I'm going to tell them, hey, stop distracting me. This doesn't change my value. I'm not going to waste my time and my resources delving deeper here. I've got to go and deal with the things that matter. In fact, I would wager out of every 100 pieces of information you get about a company, five matter, 95 don't the essence of investing is to figure out what matters and what doesn't. If you can do that well, you're already 90% of the way towards being good at valuation because it's so easy to get distracted by things that don't matter.
2: Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors.
3: Hey, everyone. It's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon? And millions of other queries right at your fingertips. Visit Meka.com.
0: And I think the challenge is when we're putting this in a model and we're trying to arrive at our intrinsic value assessment, there are different ways we can get there. And so one is free cash flow to the firm, free cash flow to
1: equity. They'll all get you to the same place if you do it right. So my advice is, Pick a mechanism that you're comfortable with. If free cash for the firm is what you feel more comfortable doing, stay with it. If you're working, in, and it's not just, me- you know, mechanisms. you Should I value a company in US dollars or euros? You're going to get very different inputs. Pick a currency, pick an approach that works for you. Just do it right. Don't do five different DCFs, all of which are screwed up because you're doing each of them incorrectly and expect them to give you an answer you can act on. It's really ultimately values driven by cash flows, growth, and risk. Now, how you converted it to a DCF, you can look at just the equity investors in a company, which is free cash flow at equity, or you can look at all investors in a company, but you're asking the same question. The one dimension on which you can, you can push the model is you can ask, should I be looking at the cash flows I actually get, or should we be looking at these hypothetical cash flows? Free cash flows, after all, in a sense, are your estimates of cash flows but there is a cash flow you get directly from the company, which is dividends. It's a model that predates free cash flow models. It is a free cash flow equity model, but you're assuming companies pay out what they can as dividends. So when you use a dividend discount model, which some people still do, you're effectively saying, look, I don't want to estimate the free cash flow equity because I have to make assumptions. So I'm going to look at the number, the cash flow they actually gave me and use that as my basis. I understand that, but we do know with beyond any doubt that companies don't pay out what they can afford to in dividends. How do we know? Well, all you have to do is look at their cash balances, right? You don't end up with a $150 billion cash balance through accident. So the dividend discount model is the simplest and most direct intrinsic valuation model, but it does lead you to trust management to pay out what they can afford to, and that can be a dangerous place.
0: And I guess on the growth rate, what do you see as the most common mistakes people make when they're estimating the future growth rates of, say, the cash flows or something?
1: They act like they're in a silo, that, every, that everybody else in the world is stupid. Every other company is not acting, and only their company is mapping out a pathway to the future. It's human nature. When you value a company, you say, well, they're going to do this. That's amazing. That's going to increase their growth rate. What if everybody else does what they do? So when people talk about the automated driving is what's going to, sh- you know, save the ride-sharing companies. If only Uber does it, maybe it will. But if Uber and Lyft and DD and Grab and Ola all do it, then what happens? I think we need to bring in some game theory into valuation and realize that when companies make changes, changes in pricing, changes in policy, the rest of the world doesn't just sit still and let them do it. They respond. And you've got to build in those responses when you value companies. It makes life a lot more difficult, but it makes it much more realistic. It's a mistake I see analysts making on growth rates often. We know conclusively that analysts' estimates of growth in earnings, and they often estimate growth in earnings per share, not in revenues, growth in earnings per share at individual companies, are biased upwards. Why? Because they look at their company, they see all the special things a company does, they listen to the management, they give it a high growth rate. But if there are 15 other companies doing the same thing, they can't all grow at that rate because the market's not big enough. One test of whether you're being realistic is if you start adding up the growth rates across companies and look at the size of the market you will need to justify those growth rates across all companies, you very quickly realize that the market is not big enough to justify all of those companies growing at those growth rates. It's what I call the big market delusion, especially prevalent when you're seeing a market kind of become a big growing market. China 20 years ago, social, no, online advertising 10 years ago, AI and cloud computing today. People tell a big macro story and they assume that if you're in that space, you're going to make money. It's what I'm going to call the Cathy Wood delusion, which is every single company in a portfolio is justified by the fact that it's in a market, a macro market that's growing. She's got that part of the story right. She's very good at predicting macro markets. What Ark and Kathy Wood are not good at is looking at individual companies and asking the question, why should this company be the winner in this? We can all agree electric cars are the wave of the future, but why should Tesla be the bet that I make at its pricing today? You could believe that crypto is going to be the growth of future, but why Coinbase as the trading platform? We need to ask questions about individual companies, their competitive advantages. I mean, the birds of value investing, the moats that they bring to the game and not just reward them for being in big growing markets and attaching high prices just on that basis.
0: Another aspect you mentioned that's super important to the valuation analysis is the discount rate. And so there's been... I guess a couple ways that we can estimate this and forecast how risky these cash flows are, which is one I've heard people use that use a constant discount rate. So they think of it like I want to earn 10% from this investment. So they use a constant 10% required return as their discount rate. And if the value ends up being lower than the price, then they would buy it because with that discount rate, they think they get a good expected return with a margin of safety. But then the other approach that's taught in finance classes and the CFA is to think about how risky those cash flows are. And then it requires using a lot of estimates and a lot more assumptions than that
1: first approach. Let me reframe the choices. The choices are between what you want to make and what the market needs to make. That's really the choices. I mean, when you talk about the CAPM arbitrage pricing model, they're all pathways to figuring out what other people need to make on this company to break even. The reason what you want to make should never enter the process is the same people who want to make 10% probably also want to be 20 pounds lighter. They want to be 10 years younger. You can't, what you want is not what drives investing. When you think about the intrinsic value of a company, it's based on what investors collectively attach as price. Because you could say, I want to make 10%, but if the rest of the world says, we'll settle for 6%, well, guess what? The pricing and the value of the company is going to reflect the 6%. You can choose not to buy the company. I'm not saying I'm going to force you to buy the company and earn 6%, but you can't impose what you think you need to make because that's a number you made up out of whatever and bring it into every valuation. So it's not really a choice between constant and different discount rates or your discount rate and a model's discount rate. It's a choice between, do you want an intrinsic value of the company, which should be based on what investors in the company need to make on that company to break even. And if it's an intrinsic value you're looking for, then you need to come up with a discount rate for a company based on what other people are making on similar risk investments today. That's really what all of these models try to do. When you use a beta, you know, you're basically saying, I can make a similar return on other investments of equal betas. So really the choice is between you making up a number, in which case, I don't think you should be doing intrinsic valuation in the first place. Just stick with pricing and move on. Or do you want to get an intrinsic value for the company? If you decide to go the intrinsic value route, you have no choice but to come up with a rate that other people will need to make on the company. And guess what? If you're investing in Apple, guess who those other people who are setting the rate of return on Apple are? They're going to be BlackRock and State Street and Fidelity and Vanguard because they're the ones who are the big institutional investors and they tend to be diversified. And the reason we end up with the models that we do where only the risk you cannot diversify away ends up in the discount rate. It's not because I assume you're going to be diversified it's because the rest of the world is basically pricing the company from a diversified investor standpoint. And if you choose not to be diversified, you've read too many books on concentrated value investing, and you think you should hold only three stocks, that's your problem. Don't expect the market to give you a higher expected return because of that. You got to figure out a way to earn that higher return because you're such a good picker of stocks. But intrinsic valuation is really about what is the fair value of the company in the market today, given the price of risk in the market? That's really the question I'm trying to answer. You can then choose not to buy that stock because you need to make 15% returns. But guess what? If you adopt that strategy, accept the fact that you're going to be holding a lot of cash for long periods because you've arbitrarily set a rate of return, that is a return the market is not delivering.
0: That was really helpful. I think that, yeah, you explained that so well. And that's something I've been wondering for a while, because if we pick this arbitrary number, even if it's higher than the cost of capital actually is, it could go south at some point in our analysis.
1: The uh, nature of intrinsic is the discount rate should reflect the risk of the company. It should be reflecting your risk aversion or what you thought. So this is nothing to do with you. That's something people need to remember about intrinsic valuation. So this is why even if you have a three-year time horizon, people say, well, if I have a three-year time horizon, should I just do cash flows for three years? This has nothing to do with you. It's got everything to do with the company and its intrinsic value. You can then decide to trade based on what's good for you. That's that's the only part of this process you control. Should I buy or not buy? Should I sell or not sell? You can't change the intrinsic value of a company by feeling more risk-averse or less risk-averse what investors collectively feel will affect that. But that's what you're trying to capture in the intrinsic valuation.
0: I guess one more quick technical question. So as we forecast our years out, is there kind of an optimal amount of years we forecast out? Because we know the longer we forecast, our estimates are likely going to be they could more room for error the farther we go out.
1: Mathematically, you don't have to forecast if you have a company that's already a mature company. Mature in the sense you're growing at a rate roughly there. Forecasting has nothing to do with uncertainty or precision. It's got everything to do with how close your company is to being a mature company, where you're willing to tie things down and say, hey, you know what? I can estimate the value of the company because things have settled down. When you're valuing a Coca-Cola, you could probably value it, with two years of forecast. Why? Because company is close enough to steady state that you can say, you know what? I didn't use two years to fix these two issues in the company that it's trying to increase its debt ratio and perhaps pay out more in dividends. But if you're valuing a company like Peloton, you're probably going to need a lot longer because a company is still working out what its business model is going to be. It can't decide whether it's a subscription company or a fitness equipment company. And until it decides that, you can't put it into steady state. So how long do you have to forecast cash flows again has nothing to do with your predilections as an investor or your lifetime horizon as an investor or un- how uncertain you feel. It's got, again, everything to do with the company. It goes back to the point I made. Don't think about what makes you comfortable or uncomfortable. Think about the company and try and estimate an intrinsic value because that's going to drive many of the parameters you estimate along the way.
0: And I think one thing that is ingrained in the minds of value investors, some who might follow advice of Warren Buffett, is that once they buy a stock that they believed was undervalued, they want to hold that forever and they don't sell because in their mind they have these stocks as hold forever stocks, as Warren often calls them. And I know that you take a different approach and that you have no problem selling. And so I was just wondering if you could talk about why you don't share that same hold forever mentality
1: because if you if you're a value investor and you buy because something is undervalued how can you with a straight face tell me that you will still hold it when it's overvalued right i mean I, I, you can't be consistent one half of the process and not the other so I, my view on value investing is i buy something because the price is less than the value but let's say i put a 20% margin of safety why isn't it analogous that i should be selling that same thing when prices I mean, it's a mathematically, there's no difference, right? It's just a sequencing of when you buy and when you sell. So to me, it seems internally inconsistent to claim to be a value investor and then say, I'm going to buy and hold forever. Um, Because there are some companies you might hold for the long term because their value goes up proportionately with their price. Remember, your value will change over time as well. But if your value goes up only 20%, the price goes up 200%. Guess what? You should probably leave and move on. There's no point holding on to this because I don't see the benefit.
0: So, then how often should we revisit our valuation analyses? Is there an optimal time, you think?
1: Probably every year, right? Every time something big happens at a company, you have no choice but to revisit it. There's a reason active investing is hard work, right? It's not just find something undervalued, buy it, and forget about it. You got to revisit that investment every year in your portfolio to say, I mean, every investment in your portfolio has to re-earn the right to stay in your portfolio every year. That's the way to think about it. Now, obviously, I don't want to build up and do all of my valuations at one point in time. So I try to stagger them over the year. But I think that you need to take a, you know, keep looking at your investments in your portfolio asking, is it time yet for this to leave? Because if you don't do that, you're going to end up with a lot of deadwood in your portfolio where you look at, I wish I'd sold this seven years ago when the stock price was 10 times what it is today.
0: Yeah, I think that's something that's maybe misguided when studying his strategy because it's talked about a lot. It's once you buy that, I'm buying that because it's a hold
1: forever. And what you said rings true. There's a selection bias too, right? Let's say 20 people start with Warren Buffett's philosophy. I'm going to just buy and hold. At the end of 30 years, you pick the two most successful of those 20 investors. And guess what you're going to find? The buy and hold strategy worked really well because this is selection bias. You know how you compare buy and hold strategies. You take the investors 20 or 30 years ago who all told you to buy and hold and great reputations and as value investors. And then you track what happened to their buy and hold investments over the last 30 years. I'll wager you'll see a lot more shakiness. Even Warren's track record, if you look at his buy and hold in almost every one of his successful buy and hold investments, come from the pre-1990s, Coca-Cola, Washington Post, and they've had their ups and downs along the way. Almost nothing that he's invested in the last 20 years. I look and say, you know what, that was a great buy and hold strategy. In fact, he's sold some of his, so, you know, even within his portfolio, he's clearly willing to sell. And I think one thing people have to stop thinking about when they look at Berkshire Hathaway is Warren Buffett's not there picking stocks anymore. Man, he's 90 years old. Give him a break. Let him live you know, live out the rest of his life. If you think he had any role in picking Snowflake for that portfolio, I would challenge you to show up at the next Berkshire Hathaway meeting and ask him a question. What does Snowflake do? Why did you buy it? I don't think he had any role in it because it's not his fault. Eight years ago, he did. He actually was pretty open about the fact that he turned over the stock picking at the company to Todd Combe and others. And he said, look, I'm moving on. But people still think when Berkshire Hathaway buys a company, it must be Warren Buffett's decision. I don't think it is anymore. And I think we need to let go of that. Stop following everything Berkshire Hathaway does as if it was a Buffett pick we're following.
0: I guess one thing that I really struggle with sometimes when going through this process, trying to find undervalued companies, just being super aware of my limitations as an investor. And I know one of my guests brought this up in a previous interview where most trading done in stocks is by active investors or institutions. I think it was 90%. And so his words were, if you sell a stock or if you want to buy that stock, someone's selling it to you at the same price and chances are it's an institutional manager. And so I always grapple With this thought of what would I know that they didn't already exploit to drive up the price to its intrinsic value today?
1: Well, the reality is institutional investors wouldn't know intrinsic value if it kicked them in the face. And they're they're momentum, they're sheep. I mean, if you think institutional investors are deep thinkers who somehow estimate intrinsic value and make informed decisions, you haven't tracked how they behave. Do you know during every crisis, the people who panic the first are not retail investors, it's institutional investors. The people who sell into crises, worst culprits, institutional investors. So I think you should be glad when you're trading against an institutional investor because you're probably trading against momentum. That's pretty much what you're trading at. 95% of institutional investing trading is driven by momentum shifting, at least in their mind. So if you're a trader, you watch institutional investing a great deal more than if you're an investor. If you're an investor, the fact that institutional investors selling is really good news to you. Because that's probably a good sign for your company that they're all selling and moving on. Don't worry about the fact that there's an institutional investor because you're thinking that there's some brilliant intellectual genius sitting there on the 19th floor of the Fidelity building. No, it's just a young trader who's been told, get rid of this position quickly because we don't want our clients to see on December 31st that we were owning Facebook all through the year. Through December, you're going to see a lot of losing stocks being sold by institutional investors because they don't want the stock to show up in their year end portfolio. It's a stupid reason to sell. The damage has already been done. But you know what? As an individual investor, it's great for me because I can take advantage of their predilection to be on the other side of the transaction. But I think there is a point to be made about activity. It's a well established fact, and research backs this up that more activity is the most damaging thing you can do to your portfolio. You tell me how often you trade It's the best indicator for how much you will trail the market by over the long-term. You trade 500 times a year, I don't care how brilliant you are, how amazing your trading strategies are. I'll guarantee you that after your trading journey is done, you're gonna look back and say, I really screwed up. I mean, as you can see, I'm not a great fan of day trading or trading based on little blips in the market. Then you're really at the mercy of being on the other side of more powerful forces. And it's not even institutional investors, it's computers. Let's face it, a computer can see trends faster than you can and can act more decisively than you ever will. You can't out-trade a computer. And that's what a lot of these day traders are doing, is they're trying to out-trade computers. As an investor, I don't have to fight against a computer. Often I'm going in the opposite direction. So I think for me, computerized trading and all of the additional stuff that's come with that is a boon because it actually makes momentum stronger in both directions and makes it more likely then that I will find significantly undervalued and significantly overvalued stocks. Let's take a quick
2: break and hear from today's sponsors.
3: Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing.
2: This and other information can be found on the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid
3: advertisement. Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. The third generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet and redefines sporting luxury. with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show.
0: I just have one quick question on that. Do you think that Retail investors have a certain edge in different markets. So you mentioned that we kind of, we shouldn't worry about institutions, but typically they go for the very large cap, well-covered stocks. Do we have an edge there or maybe more so in small cap?
1: I think they're everywhere. And if you, if you don't believe me, take, take a small cap stock, pick the top 10 investors in the company. Guess what you're going to find? A bunch of institutional investors. It's very difficult to find companies that are primarily held by retail investors. To me, there's really no, there's no easy place to go in the market to make money. I would argue that um, maybe 30 or 40 years ago, you'd have been right. Small cap stocks were probably ignored, less followed, and you potentially could make higher returns. In fact, for the, much of the last century, there was this well-established finding that small cap stocks earned a premium called the small cap premium over the market, 3 4%. That ended around 1981. Since 1981, small cap stocks have earned roughly the same return as large cap stocks in the market. It's gone away. And one of the mysteries is what happened. And I think what happened was now you got institutional investment kind of permeating the process. Any potential advantages you thought you might have investing in a small company are now gone. you got to look elsewhere.
0: Yeah. I just read a great book on how the factor premiums can go away because they get, once they're published, everyone
1: knows about them and then the premium leaves. Many of these factor premiums is accidents in history, right? Because if you think about how data works, I give you 100 years of data, and I give you 200 potential factors, and you start testing them out, almost purely based on randomness, 10 of those factors are going to explain returns. Not because they had anything to do with returns, but because they happen to be correlated with something. It's like the Super Bowl indicator. You've probably seen that if the AFC team wins, it's bad for the market, the NFC team wins, it's good for the market. We know it's complete nonsense, but if you allow enough indicators, I can come up with 50 indicators. Factors are very much the same way. One of the big questions, and this is something academic finance has not dealt with very well, but recently people have started asking questions, is how much of all of this established research that we have on small cap stocks, low price to book stocks working, how much of that is just a combination of people having too much data, too many people looking at too much data, looking for results. Because remember, to get published, you need statistical significance. So if you have a thousand researchers looking at the same database and you try one thing and it doesn't work, you try another thing and another thing, sooner or later, you're going to keep finding more and more things that are statistically significant. You're going to get them published. There are going to be some people who actually think this is a way to make money. They're going to invest based on it. And 10 years later, they're going to look back and say, how come I'm not making money? It's the story of academic research not converting into practitioner returns is maybe a lot of this reflects the way academia gets published and what gets published in data. I'm cynical about academic research. I would never invest based on an academic paper claiming to make excess returns simply for that reason, because I know the process by which a paper gets to that stage of being published. And I'm not sure it's a good way of finding ways to make money in the market.
0: That's really interesting to hear you talk about that because I personally take quite an academic approach and it's just from going through this formal schooling and it coming out of the CFA and I just, yeah, kind of that academic side resonated. So that's really interesting to hear you on the other side.
1: And I think that, no, I work with data all the time. I respect data, but I don't revere it, which is I understand how many wrong paths data can send me down. Because I can see, I, I, I see every day what people do with data and it terrifies me because if you have biases, you'll find a way with data to back up those biases. And in investing, what we've created is ways in which you can use data to back whatever your preconceptions are. What it allows you to then say is, look, I'm being scientific. I'm looking at data. I'm not being subjective. I think we need to stop lying to ourselves about how much of our decision-making is driven by our priors and preconceptions. If you really, really love a company, you're going to find a way to buy the company. You can end up doing it with a lot of data. But let's face it, you made the decision to buy the company before you actually started digging through the data. It's very difficult to be objective and scientific because you can't be. Investing is too personal. Now, maybe if you were operating in a market where you had never heard of any of the companies that you were investing in, maybe investing might be a little more scientific there. But let's face it, there's no way you can be looking at Google or Facebook or Amazon or Apple without priors and preconceptions. And the sooner we accept the fact that we have priors and preconceptions, the more healthy the discussion about investing is going to get.
0: I do have one more question on valuation I wanted to ask you, because we know that no valuation process is going to be precise and it's, we're going to have to adjust it and it's going to change over time. But are there any ways that we can improve the odds of our success in the valuation analysis?
1: I'm going to turn the question back on you. Why is it so imprecise?
0: I guess perhaps because it was done at one point in time with very specific variables.
1: What are you trying, in evaluation, what are you trying to do? You're trying to forecast the future, right? I tell people, look in the mirror and remind yourself you're not God. That's a reality. Uncertainty is a feature, not a bug. You can't make it go away. In fact, I see people trying to come up with ways to make valuations more precise in a world we're surrounded by uncertainty. And I say, what kind of ego must you have to think that if you build a bigger Excel spreadsheet, you can make uncertainty about future pandemics and wars go away. Accept the imprecision, accept the uncertainty, welcome it, and treat it as part of investing. It'll make your life a lot healthier because I see analysts constantly struggling. That's why they're easy targets. For these sales pitches of, hey, just adopt it. Your valuation will get more precise. Just do this. you will get more precise. No, you can't make an uncertain world into a certain world on a spreadsheet. Uncertainty is part of the process. Accept it as part of the process. And just say, look, that's why I don't concentrate my portfolio. It's a lesson as to why concentration, if it worked 40 years ago, is even more dangerous now than it was 40 years ago. Because how can you pick three companies and tell me you feel so comfortable about these, not only the the valuations you have for these three companies, but the fact that a price will adjust to value in these three companies, that you can make that bet. We live in a world where there's incredible uncertainty coming from macro sources, from micro sources, from technology, from disruption. I think the lesson I would take out of it is if you've had five stocks in your portfolio, have 15. If you had 10 stocks, make it 25. You need to spread your bets more because the nature of uncertainties, you're going to be wrong and you're going to be terribly wrong in some of these investments. And you can't afford to be terribly wrong in an investment that's 50% of your portfolio.
0: And I guess the trick is you want to, you don't want to be too concentrated, but then if you're valuing 15 companies, chances are you probably don't know 15 companies or 20
1: amazing. And so Are you valuing at the same time? Where do you go from all cash to a 15 stock portfolio? Investing is a gradual process, right? I mean, you don't value 15 companies. And in fact, that's a dangerous thing to do because then you're making a bet on the market at a point in time. I do, I mean, I know dollar cost averaging is a big deal. I don't do dollar cost averaging, but I do spread my investing across time because you have no idea whether the market you're getting into is at its peak, the bottom, the middle, who knows? investing is about finding undervalued companies at the points in time you find them and adding them on. And guess what? It takes a little while to get to a portfolio. So my advice when you start being an active investor is start with 90% of your money in an index fund. It might seem like failure. Find an undervalued stock, buy it with the 10% and wait till you find another undervalued stock. It might take you six months. I don't get an undervalued stock every week. I'd be terrified of my valuation process if I keep finding undervalued stocks week after week after week. It takes me months sometimes to find something that I'm interested in. Six months from now, you find something, in, then get rid of 10% of your index fund, buy your second stock over time. But you need to have that anchor of an index fund early on because otherwise you're going to be putting your money in one or two stocks and that's a very dangerous place to be. It takes patience to actually create an active investing portfolio but you'll get there if you're willing to give yourself time.
0: I guess that brings up a question. I'm wondering what your process looks like then for how companies get on your radar in the first place. Where are you looking?
1: A classic one is you see a stock price drop 50%. My radar says, is there a good reason? And most people stop there, but I actually value a company based on the information that's come out sometimes. Most of the time, the information was so bad that you say, you know what? I can see why the stock dropped 50%. But maybe one time out of 10, I look at it and say, you know what? I brought the bad news in, but I can't see why that would explain the big price drop. I mean, I, you know, Facebook is a classic example. We know what triggered the price drop was this earnings report that contained bad news on earnings and this additional announcement that Facebook was going to invest another 90 billion on top 10 billion they already have on the metaverse. Unquestionably bad news. I can see why the price dropped. But why so much? Since I've had a history of valuing Facebook, I went in and put in those assumptions and I built in what I call my doomsday scenario, which is let's assume the market's assuming that this money is going to be completely wasted. The $100 billion is going to be thrown into a hole in the ground. That the online advertising business has zero growth left in it. In other words, let me take the bad news and make it the worst possible news. What would the value be? I got, got a value actually 5% higher than the stock price with a doomsday scenario. And I said, can't be that bad. I mean, you don't trust Zuckerberg to deliver value, but are you telling me you found a hole in the ground to throw in a hundred billion? That doesn't strike me as typical of the company. So sometimes the trigger for a company making it onto my radar is because something bad has happened. There are other cases where a company is made into my radar because I've always liked the company. I've liked the company because I like the way it's managed. I like its management. I liked Amazon in 97 when I looked at it, in 98 when I looked at it, in 99, I looked at it, but I didn't buy it at any of those times because I valued it at that time. And in spite of liking the company and its management, it just wasn't undervalued. 2000 actually when I valued it, the stock was at 84, I valued it at 35 and they said, I'm not buying the company. 2001, after the dot-com bust, it was trading at $11 per share. I revalued it. I got a lower value than I did the previous year because the economy had gone into recession. There was more, now what concerns about Amazon making it, but the value I got was 24, down from 35, but the stock was at 11. I bought Amazon for the first time in 2001. Sometimes companies are on my list because I like the company, but I don't like it at this price. Investing is about buying at the right price. It's not buying the right company. It's about buying at the right price. So to me, sometimes companies make my list because I like to own them, but I don't like the price they're at. But I know that if I wait long enough, the market will be right. I had to wait 16 years to buy Google now because it kept being overpriced in my, at least based on my, my assessment of value. Now, I could have been wrong every one of those 16 years, but I have to stay true to my investment philosophy, which is I value companies, rightly or wrongly, and I've got to make decisions based on my estimate of value. Because if I don't, then what's the point? If I'm going to abandon that rule because everybody else likes Google or I saw a buy recommendation from Morgan Stanley on the company, then really, I don't have a philosophy. And if you find yourself constantly bypassing your philosophy because... Of something you heard on CNBC or Jim Cramer just recommended the company. Maybe it's time to stop being an active investor. Put your money in index funds. Go back to living the rest of your life. You can live a fulfilling, happy life without ever valuing a company.
0: I think that was a great way to end the show and such great advice for all our listeners because I think we have a lot of homework to do after this episode, finding our philosophy, and I've learned so much from talking with you today.
1: Thank you. It's a work in progress. Remember, you never be done. So don't assume that one day you're going to wake up with complete clarity. Every day I wake up and I say, what can I learn today? Because... It's a work in progress and over time, you will develop a philosophy and that philosophy might be that you can't make money in the market. Be open to the possibility that you will wake up to a philosophy that says you cannot make money as an investor in this market. You cannot make money as a trader and that's a completely healthy place to end up. So don't view that as some kind of failure. It's actually going to be the most money-saving conclusion you might have arrived at as an individual. But leave open that possibility that this is not what you should be doing with your spare time. And I think that's something that I wish more people decided because I think in the last decade, I've seen people spend much too much time on markets. This confluence of social media and access to markets has made us far too market focused. And I don't think that's healthy. Don't think it's healthy for any of the people involved in this process.
0: I think that was such a great piece of advice to end off with. Before I let you go, where can our listeners go to learn more about you, your books, everything that you put out?
1: Probably my website is the central space from which you can get to everything else because almost all of my writing that I do in real time is on my blog, Musings Sun Markets. It's a Google blog. You can find it. I also have a Substack which has the same posts. So that's the, so I would say my website and my blog pretty much will be the places you can find me.
0: Perfect. Thank you so much again. Thank you. All right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Make sure to follow the show on your favorite podcast app so that you never miss a new episode. And if you've been enjoying the podcast, I would really appreciate it if you left a rating or review. This really helps support us and is the best way to help new people discover the show. And if you haven't already, make sure to sign up for our free newsletter, We Study Markets, which goes out daily and will help you understand what's going on in the markets in just a few minutes. So with that all said, I will see you again next time. Thank you
1: for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network.